I identified that there were, let's just say, 10 to 15 blogs, and if I hit 50% of those in any given week, I would create the perception, and it, to some extent the reality, that I was ubiquitous. The New York Times isn't gonna write a feature piece on you twice. Nothing gives me, very few things give me greater pleasure than if somebody writes this atrociously long, like five hour mini novella of hate, and I'm just like, ah, oh, delete. Oh, delete. Super excited to have Tim Ferriss here, the one, the only, for a work week. For a guy that started a company, turned it from 80 hours to four hours, lived to tell us about it. <laughs> An advisor, actually an, an angel investor to tons of companies, such as Twitter, Imposterous, and Evernote. And, of course, the Chinese kickboxing champion, <laughs> the guy that, that broke the Guinness Book of Records for number of tango spins, mm -hmm. trial by fire on History mm. Channel, yeah. just a superhuman version of everybody here. <laughs> so with that, let's welcome Tim to Observe Soapbox. So... So Tim, we're uh, we're all innovative product people, and you're a four-hour workweek guy, you're a four-hour body guy, but you're also a consultant to many startups. Mm -hmm. And what I want to get into more is some of the advice that you give these startups. Mm -hmm. So let's start with promotion, and let's, uh, let's talk about the Tim Ferriss before the four-hour workweek, the mm -hmm. Tim Ferriss that was known just as the vitamin guy, right? <laughs> you, you, you were selling vitamins. Mm -hmm. And you, you uh, had an idea for this book. The book was coming out. And uh, what was your plan? How did you promote your book? Mm -hmm. How did you – I know you landed a spot at South By to mm -hmm. speak. Uh, you published an awesome blog post recently about how to get media attention. Talk mm -hmm. about your promotional tactics. Okay, so I'm going to address that somewhat obliquely just because if we're talking about startups and startup advising in particular, which comes down to – a few different things, but it, it starts with product. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on that, but I actually have them start with marketing and messaging, then go to product design, then conversion, then PR, and I'll just explain that very, very briefly. So if you start with marketing, the way that I define marketing is understanding, much like Kevin Kelly, the co-founding editor of Wired, yeah. wrote an article called 1,000 True Fans, yeah. identifying the 1,000 true fans, i.e. customers who would be most likely and capable to evangelize and broadcast your message or product. Once you identify that, you can design a product for them. Then once you have a product, a minimally uh, viable product, you can do the conversion testing. That's actually where I start with my startups. I say, look, it doesn't do you any good to stick a net into the stream if the holes are this big and the fish are this big. You need to be able to actually convert what lands on your web service. We're talking about a web service. So we're on conversion, uh, homepage to sign up usually, and then the sign up flow to completion of sign up flow. Then we focus on the PR marketing. But without those precursors, it's very difficult to do the PR marketing. Um, and what I would say also is I would caution against PR with major outlets until your product is reasonably refined and you can actually utilize that. So I've seen a lot of startups who have they come straight out of, let's say, uh, a very capable uh, process like Y Combinator, and they have, they have the seed of something very, very good, and then they go and they hit the New York Times. 
Right. That is a waste of effort. And it's worse than a waste of effort. It's harmful because the New York Times isn't going to write a feature piece on you twice. It's exceptionally difficult unless you're an outlier like a Facebook. Um, but in terms of, do we want to talk about pitching or just autobiographically? What, what I, I'll, I'll talk about autobiographically, okay. yeah, just real briefly. So with the sports nutrition, uh, it's, it's, it's exceptionally important in whichever niche you want to address that you are the best in your category. So it's not just enough to be better. You have to be different. What I mean by that, and this is borrowed largely from a book called The 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing, which I recommend every startup founder or employee you read, uh, means that I started off uh, initially looking at Alzheimer's and Parkinson's research. It's a long story, but I was a neuroscience major at one point, and I have both of those on both sides of my family. Ended up being too long a sales cycle, moved to cognitive enhancement, so over-the-counter, looking at what could be done for cognitive enhancement, short-term memory. Apparently, Americans don't want to be smarter. Uh, <laughs> it's just not a very high priority. So um, didn't sell at all. I mean, it was, it was an abysmal failure uh, in our initial campaigns, despite the efficacy of the product. But a number of NCAA athletes who were also students who were taking this for grades came back and gave us feedback related to faster sprint times, better lifts, et cetera, in their, in their sports and training, took that, completely repositioned it as a pre-workout product for neural acceleration was the term we used, and we became the dominant player, the only player at the time. Now it's an entire category, but the, pretty much the only player in that space, and that's when it took off and it ended up in 15 different countries or so. So it started with the listening to the customers, the positioning, the messaging, and then the PR later took care of itself. And I think in a digital world, Putting the money into product is usually where you're best served, especially on the web. That's certainly what Evernote does. Every dollar they have, they say, all right, is this, if we put this into bucket X, is it going to do more than us putting into the product? And the answer is almost always no. Um, in the case of the four-hour work week, uh, I addressed the least crowded channels. Once I knew that my 1,000 true fans, most likely true fans, were 18 to 35-year-old tech-savvy males, partially because I'm in that demographic. It's people in the same tribe will listen to each other right. with less resistance than if you're trying to, if I'm trying to sell something to new mothers, they're going to be like, really? Like, single, 30-something-year-old dude? Like, no, nah, I'm not buying it. And I don't blame them, <laughs> right? Uh, and I identified the, the primary channels through which I could achieve a surround sound effect. This is really important. So with traditional book launches, usually they'll spec it out over four to eight weeks, They'll go on tour, spend a lot of money with very unpredictable, untrackable results. Instead of doing that, I identified that there were, let's just say, 10 to 15 blogs. And if I hit 50% of those in any given week, I would create the perception and it, to some extent the reality that I was ubiquitous, inescapable. Like, Tim Ferriss is everywhere. No, actually, he's just on TechCrunch Gizmodo and like, Mashable, but that's okay. Uh, but I'm hitting the same people. And uh, in order to, to develop relationships with those, with the people responsible for those channels, I met them in person. So for my entire four-hour workweek book launch, I probably spent, if you exclude the money I wasted on a PR firm, which was ridiculously expensive, it was something like $18,000, $6,000 a month, and they were you know, laying the groundwork or whatever the hell they were doing. Okay. That was a disaster. Uh, <laughs> but the remaining eight grand I spent on tr going to conferences, getting drunk with bloggers, um, admitting my ignorance about everything tech and just kind of being like the monkey in the middle 
And uh, then if, if, it, if it very legitimately seemed that they had an interest, because I would ask a lot of questions. If they were like, blah, 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 Ruby on Rails, and I'm like, ah, sorry, I'm completely in my ignorance pool here. What's Ruby on Rails? And they'd be like, oh, okay, let me explain it. And I'd be like, oh, cool. And I never played the I know what's perfect for your audience card, ever. Um, and, they'd, and then eventually they'd be like, well, what the hell do you do? <laughs> After like 10 minutes of me buying rounds and like peppering them with questions. And I go, oh, I'm working on my first book for Random House, and I just kind of leave it. And then they say, okay, what's it about? And if it ended up seeming it could be of interest, I'd say, look, I don't expect you to write about it. I don't expect you to do anything with it. But I have a bunch of review copies from my publisher, and I'd be happy to send you a copy. You know, I think this 10-page chapter would be of interest, possibly. The other stuff, who knows? And then I spent my money mailing these things out. And that was it. That was, that was the business plan. Getting on... Uh, Big uh, on TV channels. How did that yeah. work out? So whether it's uh, Dr. Oz or The View or Good Morning America, to try to go right out of the gate and pitch those uh, outlets is exceptionally difficult because they look for social proof that you can perform right. in the media. You have to be in there. Right. So it's a chicken and the egg right. problem. The way that you get around that is by creating so much noise online. This is my approach, and I've, I did this with the 4-Hour Body. I did this with both launches of the 4-Hour Workweek. You create so much noise online that the, the next set of media needs to pay attention. So usually that's going to be print. So you go online, you make so much noise that print picks it up. Then you can use the print and the online to pick up the radio. Then once you demonstrate that you can actually speak without, um, without completely seizing up in the moment, which is bad... Uh, then you can use that to pitch to TV, or you can at least get, let's say, a local station. My approach would be to find an affiliate of a large network. So you could just do uh, NBC 11 in San Jose, let's say. Yeah. Go down there. Okay, I've been on NBC now. Fantastic. <laughs> you take that clip, and then you use that. And that's how you pitch your way up to larger segments. So some, I don't know if anyone here has seen it, but my most recent segment was about 15 minutes on Dr. Oz. Yeah, which it. has – TV generally does not do much. 15 minutes on Dr. Oz does a lot. It's been number one on Amazon for five days straight. And the four-hour work week also has been more or less, I think it's, last time I checked today it was number 12, but it, that also went to the top 10 on Amazon for the last five days. Uh, and I think that underscores a point, which is being in brand name media is not necessarily effective. It's the strength of the endorsement and the, the duration of the time they spend with you. So would I rather have, let's say, a feature, a big feature on TechCrunch that stays there for half a day or 60 seconds of sound bites on Good Morning America? I'll go with TechCrunch. But would I rather have a post on TechCrunch that gets pushed down in 15 minutes or 15 minutes on Dr. Oz? Absolutely, Dr. Oz. But it depends on the strength of the endorsement and the duration. And also the people that will be uh, – well, that's, that's for later. Okay, cool. Uh, also the people that are <laughs> – the people, the audience of that channel, you kind of have to think about who will be watching it and what mm -hmm. kind of response you want from them, right? Right. So to go after a demographic that is not your particular demographic in the beginning, I view it as a waste of resources. And, I mean, the 4-Hour Body launch, which seems, like, miraculous and, like, oh, my God, how many hundreds of thousands of dollars did you spend on this? I had one assistant, primary assistant, Charlie, um, Charlie Hone, outstanding at social media and other and other aspects of the game, but it was just the two of us, and I spent less time on this launch than I did on the four-hour work week because I just knew where to pick my shots. 
Um, and part of picking your shots is not saying, I want to be as mainstream as possible. Let me go on Dr. Oz when I'm not ready. I want to have my army of, let's say, 10,000 to 20,000, 18 to 35-year-old uh, tech-savvy males first. And then I don't have to be the only one shouting on a megaphone. If I can get those people recruited first, let's say ideally with a few hundred of them who will then test the concepts before the book comes out, fantastic. Now it's not me shouting against the wind. And it's not because I think that demographic, 18 to 35 tech-savvy males, is necessar necessarily the best demographic because I belong to that demographic. It's just it's an easier conversation. And you also had a big tip about... Uh creating, uh, having a an opinion about a controversial issue that's mm -hmm. uh, out in the news currently and mm -hmm. uh, kind of not pitching yourself when you're just uh, starting to pitch reporters or yep. others, but talking about this controversial issue. Yeah, you have to, you, it's exceptionally difficult to get a journalist or a blogger, depends on the, on the traffic, to write a piece about your company or your product right. because the journalist does not want to be perceived as a hired gun or is extremely biased, and I don't, I don't blame them, and I, I feel the same way. So the way that you provide them with something newsworthy is generally something that's timely, something that's new, and something that's a trend. And in the media, and that could be the New York Times, it could be just about anywhere else, one, one example is an exception, two is interesting, and three is a trend. If you're going to get three, this is just how it works, so I'll tell you guys. So if you have one in New York, one in California, awesome. You do need one in the middle. <laughs> or it's not going to happen. And if you can provide that, and in some cases that means helping your direct competition. And you just need to get over it. You need to, you need to view it as a rising tide raises all ships. So let's just say hypothetically that your daily burn, so I was an advisor to daily burn, they were a majority stake was bought by ISE not too long ago. And I would very frequently, uh, if I did a trend, if I were part of a trend piece, or I would encourage them to include, let's say, Spark People or Daily Plate, Live Strong, one of these, and to view it as them establishing a strong relationship as a source with a journalist while, in some respects, helping their competitors. And I don't view that. I view that as a very smart political and strategic move. Let's move to uh, building community. Mm -hmm. You have a very vibrant community. You got an awesome following. How do you use Facebook versus Twitter versus meetups versus video to kind of foster the community? And mm -hmm. some of the tips, lessons learned about that. A few things. I there are there will always be new social media tools. The next shiny object to fixate on. You, I personally find it very helpful to choose your home base. You need a primary tool. So for Ashton Kutcher, that might be Twitter. For me, it is absolutely without question my blog. And once you have your primary tool, everything else is subservient to that tool. So Facebook and Twitter I use to bring people into my living room, which is the blog. I also use Twitter and Facebook for interacting with my fans, for polling and gauging response, interest, etc. Uh, Facebook fan page in particular, I will, I will use for that because it, it allows me, I don't use a third-party app for Twitter, and then Facebook fan page just allows me to see uh, not threaded comments, but they're centralized under the relevant comments, so I don't have to filter out all my retweets and so forth. Uh, the blog itself, in terms of building community, I'd say there are two 
at least two principles, but the two that come to mind are first and foremost having a zero tolerance, close to zero tolerance or zero tolerance policy for any type of abusive behavior. Uh, and Matt Mullenweg, who's a friend of mine, so uh, usually called the lead developer of WordPress, right. smart guy, and he, he brought up a principle that's discussed in, I think it is the tipping point by Malcolm Gladwell, which, which is the broken window theory, where if you allow broken windows, uh, if, if broken windows go unrepaired in a given neighborhood, the next thing that follows is graffiti, then it's petty theft, yeah, and then, then it's violent crime. So if somebody pops up and they're like, you know what, that's the stupidest fucking thing I've ever heard, you know, in response to somebody, you can't let that, in some cases I'll let it go, I'll put them on probation basically, and I'll be like, play nice, or I will delete your shit, you know. Um, <laughs> But really taking a hard line with that stuff. I'm, I'm fine with people attacking me, uh, particularly if they have something remotely valuable or insightful to share. I have a pretty high tolerance. But if they attack other people in the community, that's not allowed. And I view the blog as my living room. There's plenty of negativity out there in the world. I have no responsibility to invite that into my life. So I just do, I, I, nothing gives me, very few things give me greater pleasure than if somebody writes this atrociously long, like, five-hour mini-novella of hate, and I'm just like, ah, oh, delete. Oh, delete. You just wasted five hours of your finite life. Thank you very much. Uh, and the other thing is, look, if people are going to hate you, which they will, if you have any, any clear stance on anything, they're going to hate you. You might as well benefit from that by having them talk about you somewhere else. Don't have them do it in your community. That doesn't do anyone any good. Uh, so I, I do think that having a very strong, consistent policy encourages people to share who wouldn't otherwise share. Uh, it encourages smart people to share who feel otherwise, if they did it on YouTube, that they'd just be like, yeah, this is fucking stupid, you know, with like text speak. And they're like, why, would, why do I want to spend an hour putting out something that I, that I actually put thought into only to have it responded to by a bunch of, you know, knuckle-draggers? So you have to foster that type of environment. And, uh, you know, if, if somebody says something to me on my blog that they wouldn't say to my face, they're, they're gone. It's, it's that simple. And it seems very simplistic, and I'll tell you what, it is. It's not that hard to build a, a really strong community, but you have to be diligent and you have to be strict. The second thing is recognizing that building a community is not your job. It is the community's job. So what you need to do is... I feel, encourage people to build their own communities, encourage people to act as, as leaders to start, whether it's a Ning page, a Facebook group, and just say, look, guys, my goal, and I'm very clear about this, I do not want to be a guru. I have no desire. My goal is to create people who are independent critical thinkers who can, who can approach things like startups, like career, like health, and gather data and make smart decisions last thing I want is them to rely on me for answers. And I, re I reiterate that constantly. And so if it's like, hey, are you ever going to create this for like the single mother Christian convict soul? And I'm like, no, I'm not. <laughs> because I can't, I, I, that's not my world. I can't help you. And for that reason, I say, all right, here, here are the steps. And I've done this actively a few times. If you want to create your own community, let's, I, 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 I'll use Ning as an example because I did this a few years ago. I mean, there are many different options now. But I say, all right, here are the three steps. Let's have a competition. We have one week. Who can build the most vibrant community in the next X period of time? And you get this following prize and recognition. And I've done that. And once you do that a few times, it's just understood. That's, that's part of the culture. 
Um, so if you if you look at let's say search for our for our body, um, I mean there are dozens, if not hundreds, of forums, websites, wikis everywhere, and it's because I asked people to do it. Well, yeah. Let's move let's move to productivity and kind of uh, focus on email just for a second. I know. Email. Uh, there's a quote by Chris Saka that says, email is a task list that's created for you by someone else. Yeah, smart guy. Right, so what's your philosophy about email? How does Tim Ferriss do email? How do you uh, suggest we do so? Uh, <laughs> it depends, so I agree with Saka. It depends on, to some degree, on the resources that you have at your disposal. So I have... Uh, let me tell you how I do email, and then I'll, I'll provide some basic suggestions. Um, the the, I, I would say the first thing is to recognize that email is exactly what Saka described. It is a reactive workspace. So if you, if you want to have any sense of free will in your life, you need to have to-dos that are established outside of the inbox that you act upon before you go into email. So if I could make one recommendation, it would be decide on the one task on your list of to-do lists or your list of to-do items uh, to which you can answer yes to the following question. If this were the only thing I accomplished today, would I be happy with my, would I be satisfied with my output for the day? And that's usually the most uncomfortable item. It's usually the one you don't want to do, almost always. It's usually the one you should do. And do that. Take care of that in the first hour of your day before you get into email as much as you might want to check email, because it's easier. Right. It's easier to just react. Uh, that would be my first recommendation. In my particular case, I, I do that, first and foremost. So I'll define those to-dos the day before. Uh, secondly is, for me personally, I have, I would say, 80-plus percent of my email handled by Amy, who's an assistant of mine. She's in Canada. And she has a Word document, which is processing rules. And this is actually reasonably easy to do. And I'm not going to say everybody should get a virtual assistant, but it does work. It can work. Uh, finding a good virtual assistant is just like finding a good employee. So don't expect all of them to be awesome. You have to use your brain about it. But she has a, a working document, and what it reflects is what I wrote down after identifying the questions that I asked myself while I was checking my own email. So as I go through each email, what are the questions I ask before I click on it? What are the questions I ask when I open it? How do, what, are the, what is the range of options for action? So reply, archive, schedule, delete, forward. What are the criteria? And then I just put those in a Word doc, and I let her handle that for me. Um, what I would say is if you're operating on your own, uh, this is going to sound very basic, but it's helpful, is if you receive an inordinate amount of email, so I would say that there are days when Amy and I cumulatively get an email, an email a minute. Okay, it's a lot of email. So uh, and no one's perfect. It is very easy to get backlogged. So I took a screenshot of my inbox uh, yesterday <laughs> because it was 666 unread messages, which I thought was very appropriate. I will probably just delete all of them, uh, and I'll probably just delete all of them and or forward them to Amy and say, just send them an email. Say, hey, really sorry. They've already received autoresponders, so they've been given fair warning. Yeah. But it, you know, Tim's been ignoring email for three months or whatever, and 
if it's still relevant, he's really sorry, but please resend beginning of March because I'm taking all of next month off. Yeah, I have not, a friend who, uh, email, who put a away message saying, don't bother emailing me while I'm away. I'll yeah. delete everything when I come back. Make sure just email me after when I come yeah, back. If you're gonna do that, yeah, if you're going to do that, what I would suggest, because very few people have the self-control, myself included, to actually like come back and look at an inbox of 1500 email and just delete the whole thing without looking, you're going to be like, let me just see if there's anything important. <laughs> let me just take a, just a quick scan. And then you'll be like, oh, my God. And have a complete meltdown is forward that email somewhere else. Like, create a fake account or something. Like, get, the, get that email the hell away from you. Um, this is the only way it'll work. But also just not giving your email out. Treat your email like your cell phone. And I'm not talking Google Voice. Like, your real cell phone, the one you can't change. Treat your email like your cell phone. Like, would you really give it to anybody? Just be like, oh, sorry, no business cards. Like, just give me yours, and, like, I'll, I'll reach out to you. I never carry business cards. It's just like, hey, can I just get you know? Sorry, like, I... And you, there are ways to tactfully do that, but you, you know, just don't just hand it out like candy. Gotcha. So in terms of prioritizing tasks, you have mm-hmm. a quote that says, just because you're doing something really well, it doesn't mean that it's really important. Right, right. All right? Uh, how do you, what's important for you? How do you pr- prioritize your day going forward every day? Do you have, I don't even know, yeah. what, how do you prioritize tasks to do that? I mean, everything is important, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. So I, I would say that, a few things for me personally. Again, these, uh, this this might differ and would differ for many people. But for me, first of all, I don't have like five, ten-year business goals as done because I find that for those to be reliable, they would have to be so far within my realm of capability that I'm selling myself short. Like, I wouldn't be pushing myself if it's that predictable. I'm not pushing hard enough. If that makes sense. Uh, so I tend to have very short-range goals um, right now. There are a few things that I keep in mind as I'm looking at my tasks. Number one, I don't want to repeat myself. So the best executives that I've come across actually make very few decisions. This sounds really crazy. So you think of like, oh, rapid fire, like 100 decisions a day. The best executives, if they see something pop up and they think it's going to pop up again, categorically as a problem, they make a policy and then they assign it to somebody else. Or they make a policy just for themselves so they don't have to think about it. Like speaking engagements would be a good example for me. Like I've, it's very straightforward. It goes to Amy. She has eight questions. I don't see anything until they've answered those eight questions. If they don't answer it, I don't care who they are. They're out. It just doesn't matter. Categorically, that's it. Absolute. Uh, and so the first is don't repeat yourself. Make policies for yourself and for other people. Uh, secondly is don't make simple decisions for other people. Don't do it. Somebody tries to offload, just say, hey, man, I'm, I'm at the breaking point, you take care of it. If somebody's trying to hot potato shit in your lap. Secondly, is if you have assistants or employees, let them make independent decisions up to a certain threshold. So for me, with the sports nutrition company, I went from, um, I'm getting, I might get the numbers slightly off, but from like 60 hours a week of customer service related issues to two hours a week or less in one week by simply sending an email out to everyone saying, look, if you can fix it for less than $100, don't call me. Don't email me. I don't want to hear about it. Just fix it and log it in an Excel spreadsheet, and I'll look at it on a weekly basis. Then I was like, oh, okay, no problems. Amazing. Look at that. Let's up that to like $400. Again, no problems. Okay. 50, you know, that's 58 hours removed from my week just by allowing them to make those decisions. So don't make simple decisions for other people. Um, and I would say prioritizing for me also relates to 
more so than income, and income's important. I'm not going to give you some pie-in-the-sky, like, new-age lecture on income not being important. That's ridiculous. Of course it's important. But past a certain point, and if you look at Martin Seligman or researchers who look at self-reported well-being, which is happiness as they define it, I, I get it. Like, happiness is kind of a problematic term. But, like, past 75K, and it's probably a little outdated, so let's just add, like, 5K a year to that. Um, but, like, past 80K or so, it's, not, it, it's more about access to people and resources as opposed to money. Right? So what I realized through the blog, especially, and this doesn't mean everyone has to go out and build a blog because it's a pain in the ass, quite frankly. There's a lot of good that comes out of it, but it's, it's, it's a lot of effort. I've realized that, <clears throat> as an example, I was in, I think it was Houston Airport. I was on my way to Nicaragua. And I was still working on the book. I had that sensor in my side, for any of you who read that. I had the implant in my side. And I realized, I don't have my MacBook charger. This is a big problem as a writer, you know. <laughs> and I wasn't, was pretty sure there weren't going to be uh, MacBook, you know, Mac stores just littered around Nicaragua, <laughs> like in between shanty towns. So I, I was like, oh, damn it, I have an hour to board my flight. Uh, so I sent a tweet out saying, hey, if anybody happens to be in Houston Airport, like, I need a MacBook charger, I'll pay you twice retail for it. And within 20 minutes, I had two people find it. In the airport. In the the airport. And uh, that's not something you can just buy. So the point point I'm making is that income is an intermediary chip. They're like casino chips that you trade in for possessions or experiences for the most part. And in in a relationship and trust-based economy which I think is ever more going to be the case, you don't actually need income to get those things. You can bypass it completely. And that's what I've realized. Is it's just so amazing to me is that it's, even if you don't have a huge blog, you can get around those things. So where I'm going with all that is that for me, it's not which of these will make the most money. I do have, I do have a lower threshold. I, we, I don't know if we want to get into the exact numbers, but it's kind of like if, it's not, if it won't make me this much at least per year, um, I'm not interested. Okay, number one. If it's headache in any respect, then I, that do, isn't outweighed by some amazing experience, I'm not interested. Um, because I recognize that if I were to double my income, it would have pretty much no material impact on my life. I have a very low-burn lifestyle, and for those curious, easily the most impactful book that I've read, and I've read it probably 20 or 30 times in the last few years, is, uh, that, I've, that I've had in the last five years is Letters from a Stoic by Seneca, about 2,000 years old. And if you did a search replace of the names and just threw in like Robert and Jane or something, it would be just as relevant to people in this room as it was to people 2,000 years ago. It's pretty astonishing. So it's called Letters from a Stoic. S-T-O-I-C, by Seneca. And it's a series of letters from Seneca. I'm just going to digress very briefly. It's a letter because the way that Seneca prioritizes is more or less, I try to emulate a lot of his behavior. Seneca was not only a philosopher, because quite frankly, people in togas who sit out on porches and don't do a hell of a lot other than just ramble on aren't that interesting to me. It's people who can actually employ and deploy those philosophies under high, in high-stress situations. Those people are of interest to me. So like Shackleton, not Shackleton, it wasn't Shackleton. Um, Seneca and Stoicism, Marcus Aurelius would be another example, are very popular among high-level military commanders. And, and Seneca is, uh, was the most successful equivalent of an investment banker in Rome at the time, advisor to the emperor, 
and one of the most famous playwrights. Like, the guy got shit done. And he also subscribed to the Stoic philosophy. And the general basis of Stoic philosophy, which relates to my prioritizing and everything else, is that you learn not to, not to overreact to things that are outside of your control, and you learn to only value those things that cannot be taken away from you by other people. And you train yourself to have those two characteristics. It's hugely valuable. Solid. Yeah. Let's open it up to, to you guys. I'm sure all of you have a question for Tim. So uh, we have about 10 minutes or so to do uh, Q&A. So uh, go ahead. Uh, well, I have plenty of criticism on my blog. Um, if you go to the, the, my my favorite <laughs> would be if you go to Geek to Freak. If you go to my muscle gaining post, <laughs> oh man, it's oh the, the conspiracy theories are awesome. <laughs> They're just like amazing. Like look at his eyes. They're deeper in this photograph. They're different people. Um, <laughs> they're so they're so awesome. They're like they're really pretty like X Files. It's really kind of fun. Uh, I don't think that all publicity is good publicity. I think that anyone who says that, so Pete, I think it was P.T. Barnum probably said that. Um, P.T. Barnum was really smart about getting quoted, <laughs> so I don't even think he would necessarily believe that. Uh, especially, maybe that was true prior to Google and indexing. I don't think it's true now. I mean, your reputation is your reputation on Google. So... I think that there's plenty of negative. I don't feel the need to respond to 99% of it. But if somebody makes up something slanderous that's completely fictional, yeah, you need to deal with it. And in some cases, I haven't gotten to that point yet, but you need to take stronger action. I think that uh, it's the Wild West out there, and I do think that you need to... Um, I don't think that all publicity is good publicity. Yeah, 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 sure. This is when you were kind of going off and doing your launch of the four-hour work. Yeah, I remember. And I definitely see a lot more clarity of vision right now. Mm -hmm. There's some really good experiences in now and then. What are maybe the biggest lessons you've learned you know, since then? Mm -hmm. You started that ride, and now what do you see now different than you did? <sighs> That's a good question. Very fresh right now. Yeah, 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 that was early days. Um, yeah, thank you. I have, oops, hold on a second, guys. Tech support. Uh, little Vanilla Sky reference there. Uh, so I would say a few things. The first is that um, I would wish, before I say this, I don't consider myself famous or a celebrity, but uh, I was saying this earlier, and I, I continually remind myself that I think I'm 14 minutes into my 15 minutes of fame, but even in its own ways, micro-celebrity that I have through the blog and so forth, I would not wish that type of exposure upon anyone who's not prepared for it. And you should think very long and hard and talk to people who've had mass exposure before making that your objective. Because I have... And I don't even think I talk about things that are particularly uh, threatening to identities. I don't think what I talk about is that threatening. In general, but I mean, I've had uh, pretty regular death threats. I have had people show up at my mailing address. I've had people try to blackmail me, extort me. 
and I would just caution you and say, I'm not an outlier. When I talk to my friends who are similarly exposed, they're like, what, are you kidding? Like, I should sue you right now just for like, being such a nice guy. How naive are you? Like, grow some balls. And it's like, wow, okay, this happens to all of them across the board. It's what you sign up for. So I would say that's number one. Um, that's why, I'm, that's why, right now, that's why I'm, I don't have a TV show. I've, I've turned down dozens of approaches for that because, quite frankly, I'm like, you know what? I'm not sure I want that in my life. I'm not sure I want that level of exposure. And I don't think you need it to have the experiences and the possessions and so forth that you want. Um, Bill Murray is pretty famous for saying, if you think you want to be famous, try being rich and not famous first. <laughs> uh, and uh, I was actually told long ago by... The, the executive producer of the first Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie, which was, by film standards, a, an amazing success. I mean, the money in, money out was just ludicrous. And he said, uh, I want everyone to know my name and no one to know my face. I think that's a pretty good policy. If you want to become famous, make your name famous, not your face. Certainly not your addresses. <laughs> um, um, so yeah, uh, that, I'd say that the first thing that comes to mind, the second, uh, sorry guys, the second thing, I'll spend more than 10 minutes, dude, but if you guys have more time, I'll spend some more time. Um, the second thing I would say is that it's exceptionally easy to become addicted to things that are valued in your peer group. So if you have friends who are constantly upgrading size of their house, location of their house, new car, etc., you are going to feel compelled to follow the same behavior. And for that reason, um, this comes back to Seneca. Uh, but So Seneca had an expression, I'm going to butcher it a bit, but paraphrasing it, he said, um, take, take time occasionally to, to subsist on the scantest of fare, in both in food and clothing, and ask yourself all the while, is this the condition I so feared? So I actually make... Uh, I make a, an effort to continually do a few things. Give away a fair amount of money, and I'd like to say that's 100% altruistic, but there is some self-interest there. Um, so I don't become attached to this number that's constantly increasing. If I'm constantly hacking it down, it's hard to become attached to it. Giving away possessions, exposing myself to real suffering, not me personally necessarily, but like spending time, go spend time with a doctor in the ER room in the ICU. Go spend time at a hospice where you see people who are actually dying, and you'll figure it out pretty quickly. Like, oh my God, I have to do overtime for two hours. Like, suck it up. You're <laughs> um, exposing yourself to, or going to a country where, like, like Nicaragua, where it's it's the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, second only to Haiti, and expose yourself to that stuff. So you actually appreciate what you have at the same time. Um, anyway, hopefully that's that helps. Yeah. Sometimes I cannot really even bring, bring them in that. Um, it's really good to go ahead and do ha 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 leave and not stop working with them or Yeah. Is it a problem it, yeah, what is your level of enthusiasm and passion for the project at the moment? Like on a scale of zero to ten. Well, I should probably four. Okay, so you're you're all I'm, in. I'm all over it. 
Okay, so your issue is the team and how committed they are to the vision. Why do you think they're not committed or excited or motivated at the moment? Okay, so I, I can't speak to your exact situation, but just having, this is a fairly typical problem in startups. I would say there are a few different approaches to solving or thinking of the problem. The first would be getting customer validation and feedback. So operating in a vacuum with just coding and having you know, a screen of, of, of code in front of you um, does not convey the feeling of progress that you get by just having a few people come in as prospective users and going, holy shit, yeah, this is awesome. Would you use this if we did A, B, and C? Yeah, fuck yeah, I'd use it. That gets teams excited. So trying to get some type of, of, of MVP. If you don't know what I mean by minimally viable product, look up Eric Reese, R-I-E-S, Lean Startup, uh, good guy. Getting something in front of customers is, I think, the easiest way to resurrect a lot of that interest and motivation to see that, oh, my God, like outside of this insular group, the world is actually interested in what we're doing. I think that's, that's important. Secondly, um, and I don't want to speak for him, but I think Paul Graham, for example, and others might say, as long as you have a part-time job, of course you're, like, you don't have the, like, life-threatening survival <laughs> uh, factor that compels you to focus on it. Um, uh, it's a big red flag for me. If someone has a, par uh, a part-time or full-time job that they're reasonably comfortable with and they're a key piece of a team, that always makes me very nervous if I'm coming in as an investor and advisor. And I'm like, okay, when are you going to quit your job? And if they're like, ah, it's like, okay, I can't help you syndicate this deal. Like, you need to be willing, they need to be willing to go all in. And I'm not saying you need to be willing if you have kids to go like ramen profitable and like work like a 19-year-old. You don't have to do that. But People need pressure. People respond to incentives. And you know, all or nothing is a pretty strong incentive. Um, but I do think the customer validation is an important part. All right, we're, we're out of time right now. But stick around for a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, take a couple, I'll take a couple more questions. Let's thank him for an awesome talk. Thanks, guys. Thank you.